You are back with the conversation, and we are lucky to have in studio today someone who knows a lot about sharks. Carl Meyer is a researcher uh, at the Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology at Coconut Island. He focuses on shark ecology and management. And Carl, uh, you've been here for like almost 30 years, right? Yeah, that's right, Catherine. Came here in uh, 1993. And you were you an islander, but from across the globe. That's right. So I grew up on a pretty small island, and so this was a natural fit for me, one island to another. And, and that's Jersey Island. That's British right, Isle. yes. So you just wanted warmer weather? <laughs> that's definitely part of it. The weather's not great in that part of the world. And, and, and so what is it that got you so interested in sharks? Well, I've had a lifetime fascination in sharks, uh, going back to watching Jacques Cousteau as a kid, um, I grew up fishing, uh, spear fishing, and was always fascinated by by fish and by sharks in particular. Now, I had the wonderful opportunity to go out with you uh, in Kaneohe Bay as you were out tagging some tigers, and I I just was struck by the one tiger that uh, you brought alongside the boat, and I think it was like larger than the boat. Yeah, so I, I remember that, that day really well. And um, yeah, it was about a 14-foot a shark that we tagged that day. And so you saw exactly what it is that we do and, and how we do it. And um, what I tell people is that um, we use technology to reveal the lives of sharks because sharks are these elusive predators that live in the concealing environment of the ocean. And that makes them very, very hard to observe directly. You can't sort of see them most of the time. So we have all of these different tools that we use to fill in the gaps and understand exactly what sharks do uh, in their daily lives and um, figure out their role in our, in our oceans. I was so amazed and so humbled to see that shark as you, you, know, you turned it and it became very docile. And then I was able to run my hand, you know, along his belly, and it, it was like a cat's tongue. It was just, it's just an amazing sensation. Yeah, so the, the, the shark's skin is covered with dermal denticles, which are actually similar structures to their teeth. And they make the shark more hydrodynamic, so it costs them less energy to swim through the ocean because they have these dermal denticles. And surely enough, when you run your hand from head to tail along a shark, it will feel relatively smooth. When you try and do it the other way, it feels like sandpaper. And what you were doing, you were tagging these sharks with um, acoustic tags and satellite tags? Explain to our listeners what's involved in that. That's right. So in order to uh, figure out where sharks go, what, what habitats they use, we have a couple of different types of tools. And no single tool gives us a complete picture. It's more like doing a puzzle. So something like an acoustic tag will give you a couple of pieces of the puzzle and a satellite tag will give you some other pieces. And the the difference between the two technologies, first of all, a satellite tag is basically a radio transmitter. And radio waves do not travel far through seawater because of the salt content. It's highly conductive and it dissipates the, the radio signal. So in order to get anything out of a satellite transmitter, that shark has to come to the surface, stick its fin out, which is where we put the transmitter, and there also has to be a satellite overhead that can detect that signal. And in Hawaii, we only get about six to 12 minutes per hour of satellite coverage. So all of those things have to come together. The shark has to come to the surface, stick its fin out, there has to be a satellite there, and then we can get a fix on where that shark is. Now, the the positive point about the satellite transmitters is because they work with satellites, um, anywhere the shark is in the ocean and comes to the surface, uh, we can can figure out where it is. Um, The other system that we use, uh, acoustic transmitters, are devices that we implant into the shark surgically, and then those are detected by underwater receivers that we station at various locations on the seafloor. So for example, uh, off swimming beaches where there have been shark bites and in deeper areas that we think might be of interest to the sharks. And in order to get the information back, we have to physically recover those receivers from the seabed and download them to see which sharks have been in the area. And each of the acoustic transmitters is a bit like a an ultrasonic license plate. So it, it, every 
couple of minutes, it burps out a series of beeps that encode a unique uh, numeric identification. And when we get the receivers back, we can see which unique codes have been detected, the date and the time that they were detected. And when we put those pieces of information together from receivers stationed in different locations, then we can start to figure out the big picture. And one of the advantages of using the acoustic transmitters is that they can last for a long time. So the satellite tags tend to uh, get fouled up and fall off the sharks, so we don't expect them to last really for more than a year. Whereas we have um, individual sharks that we've been following with acoustic transmitters for over 10 years. Wow. And when you put those two technologies together, uh, collectively they give you a much better overview of the broad extent of the shark's movements, but also the long-term patterns of visits to specific locations. And we should probably drive people to the PACIUS website, the Pacific... Um, I Islands Islands. Ocean Observing System website, the Voyager website, yes. Right, because they can actually see <laughs> all these different sharks and where they travel to. That's right. So on the PACIOS uh, webpage, you can go to the shark tracking site and see the satellite tracks from tiger sharks that we've tagged both off the island of Maui and the island of Oahu. And we're able to post those uh, data in near real time onto that site. So when we have active tags, you, you'll know very soon after we got a fix uh, where that shark was. And uh, I know that you were doing the sh tiger sharks on the north shore here on Oahu, and then uh, we were having so many shark bite cases on Maui, and so that was really kind of very revealing to see where they were hanging out on Maui. I guess they just like the, the, the environment over there. Yeah, so what we found uh, with that study is that the insular shelf around Maui Nui is very extensive. So that's the area between the shoreline and a depth of around about um, 600 feet where the shelf starts to drop away more steeply. And it, those habitats contain everything that a tiger shark needs to make a living. So there's lots of reef-associated organisms that live in those habitats. And our tracking data showed that tiger sharks spend the vast majority of their time associated with that insular shelf habitat. And there's a lot more of it uh, around Maui Nui than there is around the other main Hawaiian islands. In fact, I believe Maui Nui has more insular shelf habitat than all of the other main Hawaiian islands combined. So it's just a naturally good environment for tiger sharks. And we also saw that um, tiger sharks that we, we tagged around Oahu would routinely visit that insular shelf habitat around Maui, whereas we saw a higher degree of residency um, in sharks that we captured and tagged around Maui. They, they spend, if you're, if you're caught and tagged in Maui, chances are that's where we'll find you all of the time that we have uh, tracking information they, for they you. They just prefer to be there. <laughs> yes, and the other interesting finding from that study was where on the insular shelf those sharks like to be. So they use all of it, but we definitely found some, some hot spots, some core areas that were relatively close to shore off popular tourist areas, uh, Wailea, McKenna, uh, Kihei. So um, it was sort of like a perfect storm and, and helped to explain why Maui has a long-term shark bite rate that's double that of any other main Hawaiian island. You know, you're sort of you're putting the people and the sharks inadvertently uh, close together. But despite that, and despite the fact that uh, Maui is very good uh, habitat for tiger sharks. The number of bites that occur uh, are very, very low in number. Right, and then we should probably point out that historically, I think October is kind of a, a, a month where we see the shark bite cases kind of pop. Uh, and it's, but that, that's this is a popping season. I think that stretches out right until like February or so, February or April. Well, actually, um, tiger sharks pop primarily during September through November with a peak in October. And then uh, they mate during January and February in Hawaii. 
And what we see when we look on aggregate over 20 years or so at, at when, what times of year people are bitten by sharks, October is the only month that really sticks out, you know, sort of double the rate of other months pretty much. It's the only statistically significant bump uh, during the season. And we pose it that um, the, it may have something to do with the female reproductive cycle, but we don't know that for sure. We haven't measured the key things that would allow us to confirm that. But basically, we know that um, it's a very energetically costly business to grow a litter of pups, which in the case of female tiger sharks, maybe as many maybe as many as 80 pups in utero. And at the end of that process, after the, the, the mother gives birth, she's probably in an energetically depleted condition and may then forage very vigorously immediately after she's pupped. And that would reasonably explain why we see the bump in October, but we don't have critical pieces of information that would allow us uh, to confirm that fact. Okay, and and now uh, I understand that there's also different kinds of technology out there that you're looking to try as as you take your research into a, another level. Yeah, that's right. So the the types of devices that we've been talking about, the satellite transmitters, the acoustic transmitters, they're they're really useful tools for telling you where sharks go. What they don't tell you is what they're doing in the habitats that they visit. So, you know, which, where, which areas are they feeding in? Uh, which areas are they perhaps pupping in or, or, or mating in? And which areas are they just sort of swimming through? We, we can't get that information from these, these tracking tags. So we are using a variety of other devices that help to fill in those gaps. And one of the things that I've been working with in recent years are shark-mounted accelerometer camera, camera packages. Now, these are devices that, first of all, have a camera uh, incorporated in them. So they, they are attached to the shark's fin. And as that shark swims through the ocean, the video camera is recording and capturing a shark's eye view of what the animal is doing. And so, for example, we have seen tiger sharks trying to mate. We have seen tiger sharks uh, feeding on dead fish floating at the, the ocean surface. And we've seen a lot of them just swimming around generally through marine habitats. So that tells us something about what sharks are using the habitats that they visit for. And in addition to the camera, the device also has a variety of sensors that give us really important information. So for example, there are triaxial accelerometers. And these are devices that tell us how, how the shark is moving through the ocean, how, how fast it's beating its tail, the orientation of its body in three dimensions. The devices also have a sophisticated compass so we can understand the shark's heading, they have depth sensors, and they have pressure sensors. And when we put all of that information together, we can, uh, for example, do some three-dimensional reconstructions of the shark's tracks through the ocean. And we can also understand how the shark is spending energy. So are there periods of time where it's just sort of cruising versus are there periods of time where it's highly active? And those may be indicative of things like chasing prey. You know, we get burst swimming events when a shark wants to capture something. And uh, or indeed, when a male shark is chasing after a female to mate, we see burst swimming events. And we take all of that information, put it together with a spatial track, and it gives us a much richer picture of how sharks use their environment and their, their role in that environment. So, so that's the idea is you, you're able to use then the technology to get the best pictures when the shark is most active and when you can learn the most, I guess. Well, it, it's placing it all in context. So the periods of relative inactivity when they're just cruising are as important as the periods of activity because uh, the, together those give us the big picture and you know tell us something about you know, how often sharks are engaging in, in, in behaviors like feeding or like mating versus 
merely cruising around in the ocean. Okay. You know, there's a lot we don't know, in fact, even about shark feeding. So we've known about shark diet for a long, long time because you can get that information by cutting open a dead shark and look mm -hmm. inside its stomach to see what it's eaten. But it surprises people when I tell them that we don't actually know very much about feeding. Um, and that includes things like where the sharks are feeding um, and how much they eat for each meal. Um, uh, you know, those kinds of very basic and important information are very difficult to get. So there's a lot to learn. If you're just joining the conversation, we're talking about shark ecology studies with researcher Carl Meyer. Do you have a shark story from your island to share or a question to pose? Join the discussion by calling us at 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. You know, so you've got these critter cams then and the, the new technology. Uh, how soon would you be able to fire off, you know, these new devices? Well, we've been using um, these devices for a number of years, but they've become increasingly sophisticated. And I have one arriving hopefully next week um, that is the latest generation. The video is high definition. And more importantly, the sensors in the, in the camera system uh, are talking directly to the camera itself. And that's important because we try to keep these devices fairly small so they don't impede the shark in its natural behavior. And one of the compromises that we have to make is, is smaller batteries, and that limits the total amount of, of video that we can record using these, these, these devices. Are they expensive? The one that I've got coming is about $10,000. Oh, wow. So yes, they are relatively expensive. And um, we have to try and use that limited amount of video data as wisely as possible to get the most information out of each deployment. So in the course of the development of these devices, I have spent a lot of time watching hundreds and hundreds of hours of sharks swimming through blue nothing and occasionally seeing some really exciting stuff. And we would like to be able to filter out some of the less exciting things so that we can capture more of the exciting behaviors, feeding, uh, mating in particular. So is the plan then to uh, go out and tag more sharks with this uh, new spiffy high-tech device, uh, the critter cam, I guess. Um, is there a plan to go anywhere else besides Maui and Oahu? Or? Yes, so the first deployment of this device, I have a student who is studying scalloped hammerheads, and she will be taking the camera to the big island uh, and deploying it on some hammerheads to get a better understanding of their behavior in aggregations and also hopefully to capture the first video of them feeding. And that's a really interesting challenge because scalloped hammerheads have a really amazing natural ecology where we see them swimming in surface waters uh, during the day and forming aggregations. But at night, they go out and they dive down to depths of 3,000 feet and water temperatures of only um, you know 50 Fahrenheit thereabouts. And um, we believe that they're doing that to feed on deep sea squids that inhabit submarine canyons. And that's never been recorded on camera. And so we're hoping that with this device, um, we'll be able to see not only the hammerhead swimming in its daytime aggregation, but also successfully uh, hunting squids in the deep sea. And in order to do that, we need a smart camera. So that's where the sensor technology comes in. And we will be programming the device to record a certain amount of information in the shallows, but then to go to sleep and only wake up when it realizes that it's at a depth of about 2,500 feet. Will it have any lights on to be able to go you know, deep down where it's dark? That's a great question. So yes, it has um, LEDs built in and they are at the far red end of the light spectrum. And we use far red because it's something that will cause the least disturbance in dark conditions. 
the organisms uh, in the deep sea and, and sharks have a very, very limited ability to perceive light at that end of the spectrum, but the camera system will be adequately illuminated by it. So it's, it's the best compromise that we can have to light up the interesting scenes without uh, disturbing the natural behavior. I have to ask, because of all your time working with different kinds of sharks, has there ever been like a close call <laughs> of, of you getting bit or anybody on your team, you know, just, just scary moments? Not really, because we are very systematic about how we work with these animals. And, and so when we are handling them, um, what I tell everybody is, you know, you need to maintain your situational awareness. You need to have an understanding of um, how you might get injured by a shark that we have restrained. And also when we go into the water with sharks, um, you know, we're, we are not, you know, there's very little risk to start with, but we're not creating unnecessary risk by doing anything that might result in somebody getting bitten. Okay, we have a call coming in from Kaimuki. Mike, you're on the line. Oh, hi. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I was just interested if uh, Carl has uh, or has any comment or, or uh, thoughts about uh, when there are shark attacks in Maui, if they're, uh, uh, do they happen to swimmers or people on standard paddle boards or whatever vehicles they're on? Are, is, are they more likely to get hit uh, or attacked if they're swimming parallel to the beach as opposed to uh, straight out? Is there any data that indicates when they're attacked? We, you know, the orientation of the person in the water is something that we're, we're not exactly clear on. When we get information from these incidents, it's typically how far from the beach they were, uh, the depth of water that they were in, uh, that kind of thing. And some of these incidents are happening relatively close to the beach. But the key thing just seems to be an unfortunate, unfortunate confluence of circumstances where you have a shark that's in that um, mode uh, who stumbles across somebody and then you get a bite incident. But what I tell people is, look, it's a very, very low probability, but you can improve the outcome by engaging in ocean recreation with other people. So whether you're swimming parallel to the shore or perpendicular, um, if you are, I, I don't know whether that makes a difference. I wouldn't imagine that it would. Um, but if you are unfortunate enough to be bitten, your chances of a, of, a, of a better outcome are greatly improved by having other people close at hand. Okay, and, and uh, where do you swim? Do you swim along the shore? Do you swim out up? Yeah, the so I like to swim along the north shore of Oahu, um, typically between Ehukai and Sharks Cove, and I swim parallel to the shore. I do often swim by myself, I have to say, <laughs> but when I do that, I stick relatively uh, close to the beach. Okay, all right. Well, uh, this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We are talking about sharks, and you can join the discussion with uh, scientist Carl Meyer by calling in one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Haleakala Waldorf School and Honolulu Waldorf School. I'm Ira Plato of This Week on Science Friday, an update of what we know and don't know about the coronavirus COVID-19. With the story constantly changing, like new evidence that may be spread by fecal material and progress toward a vaccine, how do you evaluate all this new information? Some help on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting For You Fabulous, Fashionable Women, woodblock prints featuring women from the Edo period in Japan through March 22nd, honolulumuseum.org. You, we are back with uh, shark researcher Carl Meyer. And Carl, your studies take you across the Pacific, uh, and you just completed a study about sharks uh, in Tahiti. 
Yeah, that's right. So my interest in tiger sharks in particular um, has taken me to some other locations, including French Polynesia, where uh, colleagues of mine were interested in uh, learning about some of the technologies that we've been applying to study tiger shark uh, biology in Hawaii. And so I've been down there a number of times, to, both to uh, tag sharks and also to help analyze uh, data sets that they've collected from uh, shark diving activities that happen off the island of Tahiti. And so we recently published a paper on the retention of fish hooks in tiger sharks that have gone out and interacted with fisheries. And although we're not the first people by any means to point out that uh, stainless steel hooks are likely to last longer than non-stainless hooks, we were quite surprised by just how long some of these hooks stick around. So what we did was followed the same individual sharks over the course of eight years. And that is something fairly unique. So, so the previous studies of hook types uh, have not been able to do that because it's just very difficult to do a longitudinal study with the same sharks because sharks are swimming around in the ocean and we just can't see them most of the time. So we took advantage of a, of a location where divers photograph the same individuals over and over again throughout the year across multiple years and they're able to identify the individuals from their unique patterns and then we were able to observe when these individuals showed up with hooks determine from the photographs what type of hooks they were whether they were stainless or non-stainless and and also the the design of the hook and then chart the fate of those hooks through time and what we found was that unsurprisingly the non-stainless hooks corrode out and are shed more quickly than the stainless hooks so on average a non-stainless hook will be shed in about seven and a half months. It takes a stainless hook 22 months to be shed. 80% of non-stainless hooks are shed within the first year, whereas it takes five and a half years to reach that uh, level of shedding with stainless steel hooks. And we saw stainless steel hooks that were in the sharks for up to seven and a half years which was sort of the, the, the maximum observation period at the time that we did the analysis. And the other um, related issue was that the monofilament attached to the hooks was not being shared. We thought maybe that if, if the shark was swimming around with its monofilament for a couple of years, it would be degraded by ultraviolet light and just drop off the hook. But in fact, what we found was that the sharks didn't get rid of the trailing line um, until they shed the hook itself. So are they in a lot of pain with this hook in their jaws? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, we, we don't really know how sharks perceive pain. Uh, we think it's different to us. But what we did look at was the condition of the sharks. And we actually found that in the case of these tiger sharks, despite the presence of the hooks, that all the indications were that the sharks were healthy and were able to feed. So we looked at growth rates and we compared them with growth rates of tiger sharks in Hawaii and also the growth rates of other tiger sharks in Tahiti that didn't have uh, embedded hooks. And we looked to see whether the females with embedded hooks were uh, getting pregnant, and they were. And so despite the presence of these hooks in tiger sharks, it was not as far as we could detect, negatively impacting their health. But tiger sharks are particularly robust, and we do know um, that other species struggle more when they have uh, trailing gear, which is you know, hooks and lines that come from interactions with fisheries. I just think, oh, I'd be pissed off if I had one of these in my, in, in my jaw for seven years, you know. But I guess so then the message to fishermen is what? Because aren't stainless steel hooks like more expensive? Well, it's, it, it's a cost-benefit analysis. So the um, stainless hooks may be more expensive, but, but they have properties like they don't corrode um, that means that the actual long-term cost may be lower than non-stainless hooks. 
So fishermen obviously have to look at, uh, at the cost benefit of using different types of hooks. But there are regions where non-stainless hooks have been widely adopted. So for example, uh, the US East Coast uh, longline fisheries, both the pelagic fishery for tunas and swordfish, and the bottom longline fishery, which targets a variety of fishes and sharks, um, only use non-stainless hooks. And the snapper fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico only use non-stainless hooks because uh, they want them to, you know, any hooks that remain in fish that escape or are released, they want those to drop out sooner rather than later to minimize the impact. Right. We have a call coming in from the Big Island. James, do you have a question? Hi, this is uh, James. Let me uh, turn down my radio. I, uh, we dive the Honokao Harbor frequently, and there's a famous tiger there named Laverne. She's never, ever been aggressive to any of the divers, but I've seen one time when a fisherman was pulling in a large fish, she attacked on the surface. And does that have to do with, like, she sensing something in distress on the surface? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and um, sharks have evolved to be able to detect things like fish in distress, you know, injured or sick fish who have an erratic pattern of swimming. And so when we capture a fish on hook and line and it struggles as we pull it in, then that pushes some of those natural buttons in sharks and sort of turns them into that foraging mode. And it's actually a, a problem for fishermen because sharks soon learn uh, how to get a free lunch and they will learn to associate things like uh, boat noise at a certain fishing spot with the fact that fish that are easy to capture are, are soon going to be, be available and then the fishermen put their lines in, they hook up the fish that they're after and when they're trying to retrieve those fish and get them in the boat, the shark zooms in and, and grabs them off the hook. So yes, the sharks are responding to the, the struggles by the fish. And we had another caller on the line, a shy caller. Uh, they want to know, okay, Carl, when you swim, you say relatively close to shore. Can you use feet? Uh, <laughs> measurable distance, 50 feet, 50 meters. Well, I, you know, I'm tens of yards off the beach instead of hundreds of yards if I'm, if I'm solo swimming. If I'm with other people, then I might venture a bit further out. And it's sort of, you know, I like to be, I don't want to be swimming in the surf zone because that's just a pain so i'll go outside the surf zone where i can swim uninterrupted and get into a good rhythm but because of what i do uh, and the fact that i know that there are plenty of sharks around wherever you are uh, in the water around the state you know I'm, I, I'm always bearing that in mind and thinking well look if one shows up i'd like to be able to get back to the beach sooner rather than later so tens of yards and i know when i swim with my group uh, i think somebody actually got for christmas one of those electronic uh, the anklet bracelets uh, to supposedly ward off sharks and then also uh, i guess we're mindful of n not wearing high contrast suits in the water i don't know if that makes a difference or not but th that's just generally what we do <laughs> i don't know so i've taken a deep dive into those sorts of things and um, what I will say is that there's a lot of stuff out there on the market that's absolutely useless and will not protect you one iota if a shark is thinking about biting you and one of those the one that I, I, I always think of is the shark bands which is a solid state magnet sort of wristwatch size that you can put on your ankle or your wrist and um, if you go on the manufacturer's website, they've got these videos of them uh, stuffing a sock full of, of chunks of fish, putting it on a dummy, and then the dummy gets a shark bands around his ankle and some bull sharks um, in the vicinity are apparently unable to get the sock full of bloody fish. And yet you can go on YouTube and see experiments that people have done where they bought a shark bands, attached it to a piece of rebar with a tuna head, dropped it down to the ocean floor. Along comes a shark, 
eats the tuna head right next to the shark bands and then for good measure comes back and eats the shark bands. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the bottom line there is they're so ineffective at repelling sharks that sharks will actually try and eat them. Now, the one uh, technology that has been shown to deter sharks is um, devices that use electricity. And sharks are electrosensitive. They have an electroreceptive system, so they are able to detect very, very minute electric fields. And that sense can be used against them, much like um, you know we can hear sound. And if we get blasted with incredibly loud, loud sound, it would actually be painful. So electricity can be used to deter sharks, but there's some important nuances. So the, the devices that have been developed to deter sharks from divers and, and surfers that have been shown to be effective are devices that have a geometry that creates a field big enough to encompass your whole body. So the shark will swim up and before it gets to you will get this uncomfortable sensation and then turn away. And any device that has electrodes that are very close together, so something that might only fit on an ankle or a wrist, is only creating a very small elect electrical field. So and if the shark swims up to a different part of you that doesn't have that device on, then it won't be deterred. And even the devices that create these fairly large fields are not effective 100% of the time. So when independent tests have been done, I think the success rate in some fairly rigorous tests was about 85%. What, what about like with, the, with, with colors? Um, because, you know, you always hear, oh, bright colors. And, and I know, like I said, the, the, the thinking that our group has is no high contrast. Uh, so I don't know if there's any science behind that or not. Okay, so there's a couple of things to bear in mind. And, and, and the first, first one is that a lot of the time the shark will be underneath you if you're at the surface, and you will present a contrast target. So you will be silhouetted by bright light from the sun, and you will generally appear as a dark silhouette against a light background. And the shark may not perceive any patterns or colors until it gets close to you. Now, the, the use or avoidance of high contrast um, is something that has been debated and I don't think it necessarily makes a difference and there are commercially available suits wetsuits that have black and white bands on them and you can also get stickers to put on your surfboards and the rationale behind those patterns is that uh, in in some areas of the ocean there are toxic animals like sea snakes or venomous animals like sea snakes that have this high contrast pattern as a warning uh, to prevent predators from eating them um, because it will end badly for the predator. So the thought is, well, look, we'll make a suit that looks like a sea snake and that will stop tiger sharks <laughs> from wanting to bite us. The problem with that concept is the ocean is full of striped things that tiger sharks have no problem eating. Tiger sharks love to eat spiny, striped, and, and toxic things that other organisms don't like to eat. And in regions where sea snakes occur, they are the second most abundant uh, prey item for tiger sharks. So basically, you are going to dress yourself up as the second most abundant prey item for tiger sharks and then go swimming or surfing. Okay. It sounds counterintuitive to me. Yeah. Attracting attention to yourself. All right. Well, this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We are talking about sharks, and you can join the discussion by calling one 941 3689 Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Hey, this is DJ Mr. Nick of Bridging the Gap. 
Join me and the HPR team when we come to Maui for a series of community events, including a Public Radio 101 presentation at Kuia Estate Chocolate and a night of music with me at Dirty Monkey Bar, February 28th and 29th in Lahaina. Space is limited. Get more information and reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. On the next Fresh Air, Bridget Davis. Her memoir is about her mother in Detroit in the 1960s and 70s when she ran the numbers, the underground street version of the lottery before there was a legal lottery. The book tells the story of how the underground economy became an alternative for people like Davis's mother who were shut out of job and economic opportunities. Join us. This afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. You are back with the conversation, and we have a call on the line, Bill from Oahu. What's on your mind? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Yes, uh, myself and a lot of my friends, we're avid channel swimmers, and we've swum most of the channels around here, and we also help people that are come from out of state. Uh, of course, sharks are always on their mind, and I agree with what you said earlier, the band that people wear uh, are pretty much useless. But we uh, also use a device called Shark Shield, which you may have heard of, which is uh, about a four-foot cable that you hang over the side of a kayak, which puts out an electrical pulse and supposedly detours a tiger shark through the sensory of its nose. And I, we use it, but I have never tested it to see if it actually happens. It's not supposed to even work till three meters within the shark. So you know, that comes by pretty close. But uh, what's your feeling on the shark shield? I, I We believe we are not on the shark's menu. If we happen to see one out there in the clear water, he comes by, checks us out, and he's gone. Uh, we've only gotten out of the water if they get very aggressive, which is rare. So what do you think about the shark shield? Yeah, so actually Shark Shield is one of the devices that has been shown to effectively deter sharks. And it's been ind independently tested by colleagues of mine who are based in Australia. They've done some really interesting tests with a device in South Africa. Um, they towed the device underneath a seal decoy through areas where white sharks hunt seals and they used they filmed all of the trials and they showed that white sharks would come zooming in uh, you know with the shark shield switched off they would come zooming in and bite the decoy with the shark shield switched on they would come zooming in and when they felt that uh, electric field they would turn sharply away but you pointed out the three meter radius and that's an important consideration so the you could imagine a sort of football-shaped bubble, if you will, um, emanating uh, from the electrodes. And to be effective, you have to be inside the bubble. So how you deploy the shark shield will determine whether or not um, the field is covering you. And the shark shield was the device that was shown to uh, deter sharks 85%, I think it was, of the time. So there's all that 15% that of the time where even when the device is on, the shark still comes in and, and you know, in the case of the scientific tests, it, it bit the decoy. So it, it, it does work, but it has to be used correctly and it won't give you 100% coverage. So you shouldn't do things that you wouldn't otherwise do just because you have a shark shield. So, you know, jump into a frenzied pack of sharks wearing one, for example. But good for you for uh, at least swimming with a, with a kayak. So you you know in the event of something going wrong, that you can uh, that your kayak will be able to get you uh, safely to shore. We have another call coming in, James from Waimanalo. Oh hi. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if your guest has any information on uh, great whites in Hawaii. Any any research or anything he could uh, give us in on? Yeah. So that's a great question and. We do have great whites in our waters. As far as we can tell, they are here at all times of the year. They may be a little bit more abundant during the winter months. 
but they're never very abundant. They're here in small numbers. And the tracking system that we use, the acoustic system, where we put the receivers on the seafloor, um, is compatible with tags that researchers are putting on white sharks in California and Mexico and places like that. So we have detected on our receivers in Hawaii white sharks that were tagged both in California and Mexico. And we've detected them uh, all around the islands. So uh, in, in Maui waters, right off Waikiki, um, in waters off uh, Nihihau. And satellite tracks also show white sharks coming here. Um, people see white sharks here. I've actually seen one when we were out fishing for a, another type of shark. We had a white shark uh, uh, approach the boat off Kaneohe. And if you look at some of the um, artifacts in the Bishop Museum, uh, Hawaiians were using white shark teeth to make weapons and tools uh, you know, before European contact. And, and so there's clearly a long record of white sharks being in the waters of Hawaii. We don't know really why they come here and we, we don't think that they're ever here in very large numbers. You know, uh, I want to switch gears because I know you just came back from uh, Guam and Saipan and you're doing new research out there with, uh, with other sharks. Tell us about that. Yeah, Catherine, that's right. So um, I just got back from, from Guam and Saipan where we've started a project on shark depredation. And shark depredation is basically sharks stealing the fish or damaging the fish that you are catching. And it is a problem in Guam and Saipan and also Hawaii and in many other locations around the world. And we're trying to find solutions to that problem. So um, fishermen have fixed costs of going fishing and every time a fish gets taken, it erodes their profit margin and um, can completely eradicate their profit. So it's a very undesirable phenomenon and it seems to be a growing problem. So the, the depredation issues are getting worse. And we think that that's partly due to conditioning. So sharks are very smart and they learn to associate the sound of fishing boats with free meals, particularly if you're going back and, and fishing the same preferred spots over and over again. So we're trying to use science to figure out some solutions to that issue. And we have a three-pronged approach. And the first prong, which is what we're doing right now, is just characterizing the types of sharks that are involved in depredation and getting some understanding of their behavior during these events. And to do that, we are using genetics. So we have a, a forensic tool and we're using cameras. And the genetics tool we use is transfer DNA. So when your fish gets bitten, if you get the head back, we're able to swab the bite margin and mixed up with that fish DNA is going to be some DNA that was transferred from the shark when it bit the fish. And we can take that into the lab and analyze it and figure out which type of shark it was. And that's important because a lot of the time the fish are stolen at depth where, where, where the fishers don't see the type of shark that was involved. And even if they do see the shark itself, sharks can be very difficult to identify to species level. And we need to understand which species of sharks are involved in order to start to develop uh, strategies to find solutions. So is it the idea then if, if you can determine it's a tiger or a great white, uh, and maybe time of day or whatever the conditions are that maybe then these uh, fishermen will either know when th their their success rate is, is higher of keeping their catch of that, that prize marlin or... Yeah, so that, so we first of all need to figure out which types of sharks are involved um, so that we can then go out and do some tracking studies and those will help by revealing if there are periods of time uh, during the day or, or across the year when the sharks are less abundant on the fishing grounds. So the fishermen can strategically fish 
and have less sharks present and therefore get more sharks into the bo- uh, get more fish into the boat and one thing that we see one thing we see for example is that the the time of year seems to be important so when the water temperatures are, are highest the there are more sh- there's more shark action um, stealing fish and then the holy grail is to develop devices that can be integrated into the fishing gear and will repel the sharks so that fishermen will be able to catch the fish but and when the shark swims up to try and take that fish it will hit an electric field and will turn around instead of grabbing the fish and give the fishermen time to pull the prized catch into the boat so that's that's our longer term goal we know that that technology can work to deter sharks from people um, and so theoretically it can be used in fisheries as well but there's a lot of engineering and testing that needs to go into producing a device that will effectively deter sharks from from fishes but will will still be practical to use with uh, uh, fishing equipment how long will that study go well the initial study we have is just for a year and we're trying to get funding to continue uh, and develop the other phases okay and then hopefully what you learn in guam maybe we can glean some information for our uh, fishermen here in the hawaiian islands yeah, so I, I've already put out some funding proposal requests um, to try and get funding to to do the same work in Hawaii, where there is also a problem with uh, sharks stealing fish. Okay. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating hour. I really appreciate uh, you spending time with us uh, and, and glad you're not out on the boat at this time and, and glad we got you uh, uh, in between trips. But, but thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Carl Meyer is just one of many scientists doing fascinating work on Hawaii uh, Institute for Marine Biology at Coconut Island. We thank you for the listener for joining us on today's show. And if you have any or, uh, any other shark thoughts you want to share, contact the Talkback line and leave your comments. That number, 808-792-8217. And if you want to hear today's show again or get a past show, uh, go to the conversation page on hprhawaiipublicradio.org. Our program is produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai, with some help from Paige Okimura. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday and pick up the conversation. <laughs>